0: Please do turn in your copy of God's Word, or in the Pew Bible, you can find the text, which is 1 Samuel 23, page 245. We're going to cover uh, two chapters. I'm not going to read all of those two chapters, 23 and 24. Go ahead and uh, try to find that and get it in front of you. You'll need it. I did an experiment this morning. I don't know exactly what prompted this. I went to ABC News. That's not my normal uh, news source. Uh, but I went there. I know it's a popular one. I went to ABC News, and I said, what are the headlines? I, I'm, I'm genuinely curious. What are the, what are the headlines? Um, what's the tenor? What's, what's going on in the world? And I'm not exaggerating. This is exactly as it is. Top left corner, ABC News. You can look at it yourself. Don't do that right now on your smartphone. Um, here's the stories. Are you ready? Boy, 13, killed after bullets flew through windows. Deputy killed. Two injured at Houston club shooting. Four hurt in shooting near high school football game. Norway Norway studies police response to arrow attack. Remains identified as Iowa boy missing since May. Cops. Woman raped on train. Witnesses did nothing. I'm not making this up. There is... A lot of evil and, uh, and, and crooked, wicked injustice in the world. What is going on in the world? What is wrong with people? And who is going to make it right? There was one other story on the list that stood out to me. It's the only one I really wanted to actually read because the others were so depressing. So I went ahead and read this one. Uh, more than 90 snakes found under, under a woman's home also true story that's right that's an easy one to deal with how do we deal with that one well you call up a guy his name is Al Wolf. he is the director true story he's the director of the Sonoma County Reptile Rescue he spent four hours four hours and in those four hours he caught 80 snakes did I mention what type of snakes they are rattlesnakes all of them every last one of them was a rattlesnake baby rattlesnakes big rattlesnakes he had to come back later, his across stones and cobwebs underneath this woman's house. And he ca- caught almost 100 snakes in the course of that time. The guy works for a rescue mission. They pull in less than $50,000 a year. I'm just going to go ahead and say it. This guy is not paid enough to do that job. <laughs> I mean, come on, you know. Now, what I'm about to tell you next, I'm sure we're going to be divided on how we feel about this. But he took those 90 snakes and he let them go in the wild. There was 90, almost 100. He let them go in the wild. Not near her house, I presume, but he let them go. I'm sure you have feelings about that. Who is going to make when we think about the tragedies uh, and the dark things of this world? Who is going to make them right? And by the way, why is it happening here? Well, that assumes it's only happening here. Why is it happening now? Well, that assumes that it's only happening now, but it hasn't. This has happened around the world this day and down through the millennia. Ecclesiastes says there is nothing new under the sun. It doesn't matter. It's always been here. All of these things have been here. Dif- different, different devices, different, you know, different motivations, different situations. This has all been here all along. In fact, we read about it last week, didn't we? If we had been living in Jerusalem based off of last week's chapter that we read, we would have picked up the Jerusalem Times and what would it have said? In the town of Nob, 85 priests were slaughtered and killed along with everyone else who was inhabiting the city and their livestock. That's pretty dark. Who is going to make this right? Well, it's the government. Oh, no, 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 that's not usually the case. In fact, in that situation, it was the government. It was the king himself, Saul, who was the one who ordered those priests to be murdered. Who is going to make it right? A king. The king who is a man after God's own heart, working in and through the hearts of God's people, But King David, who is whom I'm describing, not King Saul, but King David is the one who now is not yet on the throne. He is the king elect. And he has an opportunity, as we'll read here in just a moment, to seize the throne, to have it. What was promised to him, what he was anointed to take over, he has an opportunity. Now, I know we do this a lot, but I want to set up the context and remind you again where we locate ourselves to help us to orient yet, yet again. Remember, of course, the people of Israel, God's people, they wanted a king. Nothing inherently wrong about that, except that they wanted a king who was like the kings of the other nations. That's a problem. They got Saul. God allowed them to have Saul. Be careful what you wish for. Saul had power, and that power went to his head. And then he he departed from the ways of God and the word of God, and now... The Spirit of God has left him. And he is, as we discussed in previous weeks, to use our modern phrase, unhinged. He has lost his marbles. And he is enraged because he knows that there is this man, David, who is gaining all the attention. Now, David wasn't always that way in his estimation. David was loved by King Saul. David was the one who, in a selfless way, who was was anointed by Samuel, unbeknownst to Saul, shows up at the battle... With, with, the, with the Philistines and he takes out Goliath selflessly offers himself up for the sake of the nation the God, the people of God and then again and again he does it he becomes an armor bearer in the king's court he by God's providence is a musician in the king's court he ends up taking the, the favor of the king's son Jonathan they are covenanted and bond together then he even enters a covenant with the king's daughter and marries her so he is intertwined and Saul loved and appreciated King David but then something changed and he became envious and jealous and he did not want to let go of his rule. And he did not like all of this being threatened. He is jealous. He's angry. He's fearful. And now David is set on the run. And we've seen this and it's, it's you know, he's an outlaw. David is an outlaw running and they're chasing after uh, him and he, he continues to evade uh, their uh, attacks. Now, we discussed last week. After they left the the town of of Nob and uh, those people were were terminated, David is still threatened. And uh, the people there were uh, were executed unjustly. David, as you can imagine at this point, knowing this, is deeply troubled. David, understandably, is fearful that his own life will be taken. He's in the wilderness. And we saw last week in the midst of the wilderness, he has desperation. And the desperation leads him into even things like uh, deceit. Remember how he, he told lies and even acted out lies and uh, and acting as if he himself was mad to try to preserve himself. But I think what we're going to discover today at this juncture in the text is that he uh, his faith is being uh, realigned. His heart is being realigned with the God whom he knows and trusts. We see that in verse in chapter 23 in the opening verse. Verses two times, it says that David inquires of the Lord. He wants to be aligned with God. You can only imagine how David also feels very betrayed. He feels he feels vulnerable while he was in the cave. We learned in chapter 22 that he uh, was accompanied then later by 400, um, you know, kind of vagabonds, misfits that were gathered around King David. And now chapter 23, which is where we pick up, David now has a prophet and one of the last, the only last uh, priestly family, Abiathar, who is with him as a priest. So he has a prophet, he has a priest. He's the king elect. Now we we we, we would read, and, uh, and we'll pick up in chapter twenty-three, verse uh, thirteen. Uh, we find there that his his forces have expanded out to uh, six hundred men who are part of his um a part of his guard. They're a part of his his army. They actually go and save the town. Of Goliath and, uh, and fight against the Philistines. Well, let me invite you to stand as we pick back up and read. Actually, we will begin in verse 24 of chapter 23. Let me say that again. First Samuel 23, we're going to begin in verse 24. And now they arose and went to Ziph ahead of Saul. Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Moan in the Erhaba and the southern of Jishamon. And Saul and his men went to seek him. And David was told, so he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that this, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Maon. And Saul went to one side of the mountain, and David and his men were on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul. And Saul and his men were closing in on David and and his men to capture them. A messenger came to Saul, saying, Hurry and come for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore, that place was called the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of En Gedi. Chapter 24. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all of Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave and Saul went in to relieve himself. Yes, that's what you were thinking. Verse four. Now, David, interestingly enough, and this is God's providence. Now, David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of that cave. And the men of David said to him, here, here is the day which the Lord has said to you. Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand and you shall do to him as it is shall seem good to you. Then David arose stealthily and he cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterwards, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David pursued his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose and left the cave and went on his way. So at this point, he is completely unbeknownst to him that this has happened. Verse eight. Afterward, David also arose, went out of the cave and called after Saul, my Lord, my king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men? Who say, Behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between you, between me and you, and may the Lord avenge me against you, but my hands shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wickedness comes out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hands shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and he wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I. You have repaid me good whereas I have repaid you evil. And you declared this day how you have dealt with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for you for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you surely shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore... By the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. You may be seated. Lord, we know that uh, what we encounter this day, what we read is not a history lesson. Uh, This is your holy, your holy word and it was set apart for us this day would you please make it alive to us even if we showed up here today and we are apathetic or if we are resistant lord would you please show us your truth our sin and our savior christ in whose name we pray amen most everyone from early ages knows the highest peak uh, the highest point on earth as far as land is concerned, but very few people know uh, what is the lowest place on earth. I'm not referring to the sea, but land. Does anyone know where the lowest point is in all of the earth? Josh, Mariana uh, it is the, you're, you're, oh, it in the ocean. Y- yeah, yeah. But on land, the lowest point on land, the lowest point on land. It's in Israel. It's the Dead Sea. Uh, that's the, it's actually below sea level is where you find the Dead Sea. It's a very dry place. And uh, there's not much life in the Dead Sea. Uh, but just up from the Dead Sea in the same valley, what do we find is a place called En That's what we're reading about here. En was an oasis in the desert because, uh, and there is to this very day, If you, I had a chance to go there on foreign study when I was in college. And it's a beautiful place. So there are these caves and uh, and uh, there's waterfalls and natural springs that uh, would make for a great place because of these caves and this natural water to find refuge. And that's exactly what David is doing uh, with his men as they are trying to uh, seek safety and, and hide. Saul, of course, is in hot pursuit. And you can imagine that his guards around him uh, don't leave him. They're, they're keeping an eye and they are with him. And uh, of course, the only time that you could imagine that he would be left alone to have privacy is for for him to go to the bathroom. Uh, And that's exactly what's happening. And that's why he is there. And lo and behold, of course, David's men and David are there. What happened? Well, we know what happened. How do you feel about it? I mean, maybe it's kind of akin to what the guy did with the snakes, you know, what he did or didn't do with the snakes underneath that woman's house. I'm sure there were guys that are part of It's very clear there were guys there that day who had feelings. How could David just let him go? How? What is going on? What do you think David's men were saying and feeling amongst themselves? How are we going to navigate these two chapters in this account? Well, three words stemming from three phrases centered on the Lord, who is the Lord of the story. I list them there in the order of service. The first is conscience, vengeance, vengeance. And patience. Conscience. Here's this phrase. The Lord forbid in verse six. Vengeance. The Lord judge. Verse 12. And then lastly, patience. The Lord reward. Verse 19. Conscience is a theme we see here. The Lord forbid, David says in verse six. David's men interpret this moment of God's providence because of, and it, and it, it is pretty remarkable that he is right there in front of them of all the caves of En Gedi. And there are many I've seen. Uh, he just happens upon that one at that moment to go to the bathroom. This is David. They think, of course, this is David's day. This is his moment to seize his enemy, Saul. Just grab it. Saul, uh, he, he's yours. David, verse 4, go to him. Then David arose, verse 4, if you look at it again. In chapter 24, David arose stealthily, cut off a corner of Saul's robe. That stealthily, is, it must have been extremely stealthy. I mean, imagine it must have been a really sharp knife and he was very stealth to take that piece of his robe. But something happens immediately after, right? Did you catch that in verse 5? He was, he was pierced. He was struck in his heart. And we, we look at that and we go, well... Is it really that big of a deal? I mean, I mean after all, he didn't take Saul's life. I mean, what, why, is he, why is he feeling guilty? What, what is he troubled about? Well, I think that there's something here of, of a significance of the robe. And what we're probably dealing with here, if you go back and actually look at other instances where the robe is made mentioned in 1 Samuel... Going uh, all the way back to when uh, Samuel said to Saul in chapter 15, he said to him, you will not inherit the kingdom. The kingdom is not yours. You've lost it. And the Lord has departed you and he's against you. You're against him. And what, what we're told is, is that he, he reaches out to Samuel, cries out in desperation, Saul does, and he grabs him and he tears his robe. And then later we read in chapter 18, this is uh, earlier this fall. Last month we we read of how Jonathan as an act of of loyalty and and abdicating the throne even though he was the rightful heir he gave his his robe over to David to show his allegiance and his love. There's something here that's going on this this tearing and the activity of that where there's there's a, maybe a symbol of some type of of a proclamation of revolt here. And David has these These other voices, though, he knows that it wasn't right and what that signified and what that communicated as far as his authority. But there's 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 people here. Obviously, his men says it's yours. Just just grab it. What is operating? Why? What's the restraint? Well, it's David's conscience, right? It's David's conscience. And and he says here, verse six. The Lord forbid that I do this. By the way, you notice the difference in the spelling. I'm guessing it's true in your translation as it is mine. But there's L-O-R-D with lowercase. And then there's the uppercase L-O-R-D. The lowercase is referring to Lord, meaning my king, my governor, my ruler, master. And then the other is the divine name, Yahweh. When translated out of the Hebrew, Yahweh is, is written there in capital letters. That is the unique name of the God of Israel, So just for your reference point, and that's what he's saying, forbid me that I should do to my Lord, the Lord's L.O.R.D. capital, his anointed. In fact, it goes even even further here. We presume that many would have said to Saul, if you're not going to take him, then fine, I'm going to go take him out. And that's the point at which in the text here, it says in verse seven that David persuaded his men not to do it now. In my studies this week, this is a really interesting word because it's far more aggressive than persuaded. It's actually it's 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 almost it connotates something hands on like he 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 laid into he tore into his men. He was evidently he needed to be forceful with them. He cut them down. How dare you? Don't you? I'm not laying a hand on him. And if you get in there and try to, I'm going to lay hands on you. We can't mess with the king, the Lord's anointed. I'm sure it was confusing for them. But David has love here. There's something of a military principle here too, because we, we know there's been times I've heard you know, men refer to this and women who are in uh, the armed services saying, you know they, they may have had someone who was in a higher rank of them that was, that was corrupt or was mean or was, you fill in the blank, their character wasn't good And they say, but I still salute, because I salute the office, not the officer, per se, and their character. Even if someone is is foolish or is cruel. David has love and respect for Saul. He doesn't see, David does not see Saul as Saul's sins deserve, but as one for whom God has placed authority upon, at least for now. Does that make sense? Conscience is just to to take a pause here to enter our world and our experience as human. Conscience is a gift that God has given to his image bearers, to all of humanity. We're told in Romans 2, Paul, inspired of God, says that the law of God is written on everyone's heart. We can discern, not always with precise clarity, but we have more than a sense of what is good and And evil. What is right and what is wrong? Freud and company are wrong on this. Freud said that there was no such thing as a conscience. That there is certainly no such thing as a God-given conscience. Freud says there is something of a super ego that is formed by parental influence and and the society that we live in's norms and. Values. Now, I know we we use that word sometimes, you know, I don't, you know, according to my conscience, as if it were some type of exercise of my power or my freedoms or my preferences. But the Lord gave us a conscience that it would be a liberating guide to obey God's law. Not just about our own expressions of freedom. Our conscience is not something. The law of God written on our hearts is not something hoisted on us. Some people talk about that. They wish they could just shake conscience. Conscience, the law of God is not something hoisted on us. It's something woven into our, 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 our very being as humans. We know what's like, right? Even, you know, think about this, students, even for you, even at, as at a young age, you know what it's like to reflect on some of your choices, even at that young age, and some of the some of the decisions and words that we, we used and actions and, and behavior. And, and we either experience something of gratitude or guilt. Right. We're, we're, we're grateful. We say, I'm glad I didn't say that. And or, or we say in guilt, I feel horrible that I did do that or said that. And not all guilt is bad. In fact, it could be a tremendous instrument to point us to what is true about us and what God desires. Yes, of course, our conscience is not perfect, flawless all of the time. And the enemy, sometimes the father of lies, Satan, sometimes tries to hijack and lead our conscience into Confusion and condemnation. But the conscience, when healthy and when humble and when in step with God's word and spirit, is a critical building block of our individual human lives and our society. It's also, by the way, something that is very important to our own emotional and spiritual health. Pastor Walt Chantry wrote a book on David, David, man of war, man of prayer is the title of the book in there. He reflects on this. He says, even when no human voice has accused us, there has been the echo of God's law condemning us from with from from depths within our souls. Although conscience does not name him, it is prepared. It's preparing us to look to Jesus for pardon and cleansing. There is no other to quiet conscience while we squarely face our sins. Conscience, unrelieved, is a heavy burden, yet conscience is a friend to hurry you into the arms of the only Savior from the broken law and its curse. Conscience can be a friend that would lead us into... Well, I love the way that Alistair Begg, one of my favorite preachers, puts it. He says, conscience is the joy of obedience... In obeying our conscience, we experience the joy of obedience. And you know, many in many ways, even as we go back and forth at this juncture in Samuel, were, we're seeing a tale of two consciences. There's one in David that we see that is a sensitive conscience, and then on the other hand, we see another that is a seared conscience, who is King Saul. What about you? What type of conscience do you have? What is operating? Well, the next theme that I want us to pick up is this theme of uh, vengeance. The Lord judge, that's verse 12. That's the next phrase. Actually, he mentions it twice. This is what David is saying in the course of that dialogue. The drama has passed. They're outside the cave. He's paid homage. Now they're in dialogue. And this is what he says to him. Verse 12, may the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you. But my hand's not going to be against you, Saul. And then he echoes the same thing in verse 15, you know, arguing for the basis of his innocence. What is David doing? I mean, it's pretty stunning if you were just envision the scene, right? That he actually there's 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 two things here. There's a posture. And then there is a question. The posture, verse eight, is one of humility and vulnerability, why does, I mean, can you imagine that he just puts his face down there on the ground? And that, that makes him very vulnerable in front of, of Saul. And then there's this question, verse 9. This is this is what he asked of him. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your harm? Now, there's an interesting thing here. No one ever said that. That's recorded. We have no reason to even believe that it existed. Does that make sense? No one told him that David was out to get him. But this is exactly what Saul, unhinged as he is, and jealous and angry and fearful as he operates, he has villainized David and has tried to stir compassion in other people in Israel, accusing David of coming after him. Saul, you're the one who's chasing David. But David deals with him, and this is this is a part, partly a, a strategy for how to deal with conflict. If anything, look at how he he phrases it. Why do you believe these people? There's nothing that is 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 pointing this. What's operating here in David, out of his faith and humility inward, is an is, is an outward thing. What is David outwardly showing to Saul? It's a disposition of mercy and not justice. I mean, this this could not have been an easy thing. And it's not easy for you. And it's not easy for me. When we're on the giving end, we like justice. When we're on the receiving end, we like low mercy. Well, that's not rocket science. eh? Romans 2 says this concerning the judgment of God. Or do you presume on the riches of the kindness and forbearance and patience of God, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Does that not sound a little bit odd? It's God's kindness that would lead us to repentance. The kindness and mercy of David here does, for a moment, for a time, draw forth out of Saul. Not ire, not vitriol, not more of the the jealous anger, but he's humbled. Right? Did you see this? David is showing mercy and kindness. It diffuses things between he and Saul, and there's a profound impact on Saul, and and doesn't lead to um, repentance per se long term, but it does lead to remorse. And I do think that it's a genuine remorse. It's not long standing, uh, as we'll find out in future weeks. But it's it's sincere. It seems. Look at it again at the text, verse 17. Saul said to David, "You are more righteous than I." For you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. It seems genuine, but there's even embedded next in his words, uh, you know, a hint of his own self-interest and self-preservation. Because he says, hey, listen, don't trash my name. Could, Could we disagree to that now? And he does. He allows for that. He again shows more mercy. We'll find out exactly how. Saul's true heart comes about. What about you? When people treat you with contempt, when people challenge you, when people insult you, when people, and think about this one, and I don't want you to camp out here, but it's real. When people betray you, do you do you have a vision? Do you have imaginations of justice or mercy for this person? I I'm sad to say the number of times I've had visions of slitting people's tires. Probably won't do that cuz if I end up doing that then you'll know it's me and anyway that's not good. Um, there are things that have crossed my own heart and mind in my own anger and and in in the In the offense of of what I would like to do. Nothing, of course, wrong with justice if it's truly justice. Of course, we were reminded from God's word in the New Testament reading that we should not repay evil with evil. That vengeance is mine, the Lord says. I will repay. That's comforting. Now, there's nothing wrong with justice. And it'd be wise for me to just set this as a note, an important one off to the side. That if people have committed abuse or done other evil things to harm people, they do need to be held accountable. And the law and we should involve law enforcement and we should involve the courts and people should face the consequences and the restraint. And that's part of what God uses, by the way, as his as an extension of his ministry to actually restrain evil is the government and the laws of any given land. And to show someone mercy, by the way, even people who have severely wronged us, doesn't mean that we trust them. And that's true even in our text, because if you go to the very last verse, sometimes it can't be rebuilt. He knows he has an inclination as to Saul's true colors. Does the last verse of chapter 24 say that he picked up all his belongings and his men and he traveled back to the king's household? No. No. It says, and David swore this to Saul, but then Saul went home and David and his men went up to the stronghold. To show people mercy is difficult because sometimes we would prefer in our anger to become the prosecutor, the judge, and the jury. We do. And that's because we forget two things. It's because, first of all, we forget that we have been recipients of a tremendous amount of mercy from a holy God. And the second thing we forget is that there is a day coming when the Lord will repay and vengeance and justice is his. That's freeing to us. Elsewhere, David clearly speaks of what he wants to happen to the enemies of God and to the wicked. He wants them to have their teeth crushed for them to be blotted out and cut off. It's pretty strong language in the imprecatory Psalms. But he always leaves it to the Lord. We see that echoed in the New Testament. 1 Peter 2 says... For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He, Jesus, committed no sin. Neither was any deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Friends, for us to embrace that, for us to abide with, with, with comfort and caution underneath that, involves something of surrender and indeed the fruit of the Spirit of God, namely patience. Which leads to my last theme here that we see. What does it say, the the phrase there? It's actually on the the lips of Saul in the dialogue between him, recognizing that he is a righteous man, more righteous than him. To David he says, verse 19, May the Lord reward you. And indeed the Lord does reward David. David's patience and faithfulness is, is something that is rewarded. But can you imagine the stress and the fear and the hurt that when when, when, when David is standing there watching Saul come into that cave, he maybe turns around or whatever, and it's, and it's his moment. It could be over. It, it, the, the, the wilderness, I'm sure when his men said to him, What's going on? This is it. And it's not recorded that God said what they quote. Of course, God promised that he would give his enemies into his hands, but it didn't say exactly as they phrased it. But what they're saying is, listen, David, no more suffering, no more running, no more uh, fear. You get the throne. Take him out. And he doesn't do it. He doesn't grab it's, it's his throne, but he doesn't grab. And as one person I read said that, that, that word grab, it's not like the modern sense of the word, like, well, hey, let me grab the phone. It's, it's the kind of grab that we say to our children, listen, hold, just hold on. You're going to get your, everybody gets a trophy, okay? So don't go grab it. We, we, we say, you, you're, it'll be your turn. Don't grab Be patient. That's what David is in his conscience seeking to do is not to grab what God has already freely given to him. Not yet. David did not view. He didn't need to. He didn't view Saul as an enemy. David was already promised the throne. He was the true David, the true anointed one. And in much the same way, think about our Lord Jesus. We talked about this last week. What was it like? The Lord Jesus himself, like King David, was in the wilderness and he faced all forms of in the in between trials and temptations. And some of those were extremely punctuated after his baptism in the physical, literal wilderness. Jesus is fasting and Satan comes to him and there's a particular juncture. There's a particular time in Luke four. It's recorded verse six. And he he takes him up on. He takes him up and and, uh, at a high point. He looks out and Satan says, all of these kingdoms can be yours Jesus just bow in other words just skip it let's let's fast forward let's let's don't worry about the mocking and the, the shame and the suffering and all of the misunderstanding oh it's to just be yours right now but the heavenly father had already promised all of that to Jesus. Praise be to God. Jesus, the greater son of David, was faithful and he was patient and he didn't take any shortcut. He endured. What about you? Do you believe that God rewards patience and faithfulness? You think about that. When when you want, when you desire something... I want vindication. I want intimacy. You're restless. You're longing for something. And then you grab it. Not in the Lord's way, in the Lord's wisdom, in the Lord's time. What happens? Do you obey your conscience? Do you harbor bitter vengeance towards your perceived enemies? What happens? What happens when people annoy you? and challenge you do you trust your feelings and impulses or do you trust the lord what does it sound like by the way what does it sound like if you grab what does it sound like when you're when, when when we as humans are impatient well i'll give you an example when you're trusting in yourself it sounds something like this i know i can't take this anymore i know a shortcut and i'm going to take it that's it i'm going to take matters Into my own hands. Have mercy, Lord. Have mercy on us. Jesus, brothers and sisters, friends, entrusted all things to his Father and the judge. He, Jesus, was faithful, patient, even unto suffering. And what is his reward? What is the Savior's reward? Well, it's his bride. It's his church. It's his sons and daughters, his people, the church of Christ. And it was in the name of love that Jesus lays down his life as a perfect, spotless sacrifice, a substitute to cover our sins. And who did he do it for? Oh, the righteous? No, he did not. He did it for the just. No, no, he did not. He did it for... To make sinners, to take us sinners who were in need of mercy. Who were not his friends, but rather his enemies. And he died to make us his friends. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us before we come to the Lord's table to find nourishment there. Lord, Father, thank you for the reminders of faith you know, Lord. Our hearts, even better than you, even better than we know for for sure. You know that our sins, whether they're unbelief or pride or ungratefulness, manifest in so many ways. We we know, you know, there is in our story, maybe even our most recent past, impatience and bitterness. We're not loving. We we've even been vengeful. Lord, please forgive us. Woo us by your Spirit back to that glorious and foundational gospel message. Lord, I pray that you would be with young people in our church, that you would raise up a generation of faithful servants who serve and lead and love like Jonathan and David here. Lord, we know we live in troubled times in a splintered country. In culture, Lord, we know we have leaders that have been elected and they need, Lord, our respect and they need our prayers. So we do pray for our president, for his cabinet. We pray for our governor. We pray for other elected leaders who bear many responsibilities and ask that you would be merciful to grant to them wisdom and integrity, especially in uncertain times of division and confusion. Lord, others who are in leadership, obviously many who are in the medical field need insight and strategy to address this this longstanding pandemic, have mercy. Lord, we pray, as we pray in just a moment, that you, we want your kingdom to come and your will to be done. And we pray today for people in parts of the world that are bearing up, under the sufferings of knowing you as savior and claiming you professing you today we pray again for the persecuted church brothers and sisters in places like syria and nigeria and sudan northern korea iran afghanistan lord please have mercy strengthen them grant them perseverance Even now, Lord, we lift up these things to you as we pray in the name of our good and faithful shepherd, Jesus, as he taught his disciples to pray, saying together, our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil.